now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Did you know you could change the path of a hurricane just by drawing with a a, a Sharpie on a map? <laughs> really helpful, Nick. Really, really helpful. It's a presidential Sharpie. It's a presidential Sharpie. Very powerful. It could save lives. Hugely powerful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just a, God. This is so easy to make fun of sometimes. Um... Hi, guys. You're still playing. Uh, hi, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have uh, questions, comments, want to see what we're up to, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. <clears throat> uh, the podcast itself, uh, Apple Podcasts, not iTunes. Uh, it's the same thing, but the iTunes is it's, it's going away. Um, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most, most major podcasting platforms. Oh, my God. Why is that? There's like no head on that beer. It's very heavy for some reason. Um <laughs> And then uh, new and returning listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. We've been talking about it a lot with uh, our favorites for uh, Democratic uh, nominees in uh, the presidential race. I'm still on the bandwagon that it's going to be Elizabeth Warren because uh, now I can't even remember his name. Apparently, I'm senile. It spreads. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Yes, that's yeah. the guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He thinks that magazines um, normally don't have more than one bullet in them. So we'll just let that. It's not been a good couple of weeks. For no, yeah. no. But regardless, uh, what's great for our listeners is that uh, when you open up a new account, uh, you will receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predict it will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, all you have to do is use the uh, promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash barstool Paul 2020 uh, to give it a shot. It's lots of fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, quite the week, to say the least. Um, Britain's on fire. Yes. Um, and very petulant and all those other fun British, 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 Britishisms. Um, anniversaries. Uh, virtual caucuses, um, but we're going to start with uh, with Britain because wow, it's not good. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So British lawmakers returned to Parliament on Tuesday. I'm sure all of our listeners know of the popular British wartime slogan: "Keep calm and carry on." 
Well, that's not happening. Uh, Boris Johnson immediately lost his majority in parliament when a conservative MP defected to the liberal Democrats. Opposition forces, including members of Johnson's party, have come together to take control of the debate and pass legislation that would avert a no deal Brexit. Johnson has responded by saying, I think it's very sad that MPs have voted like this. I think it's a great dereliction of their democratic duties. Johnson has also said that he would call early elections if his foes succeed, but it's not clear he even has the votes for that. If you thought Brexit was crazy before, buckle up, because this is another level. Phil, uh, we throw the term constitutional crisis around a lot in here, uh, but it does appear that the UK is in the midst of a genuine constitutional crisis. What do our listeners need to know about the events that are transpiring, and what's your read of the situation? I don't have a constitution. It can't be a constitutional It's crisis. a living constitution. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Britain is in the midst of a crisis for sure. I mean, th- this is a, a lot of what's happening is is really unprecedented. I, I mean, I, um, I, you know, I don't know how much listeners know about the the, the British system, but the, the the British political system they elect members to Parliament very much like we do. But the party that controls Parliament they they their leader becomes the prime minister. And in Britain, that's almost always there's, there's one party that has a majority of parliament. They become the, you know, they control the, the prime ministership and therefore they have total control of legislation. There's nothing that can be done to stop them. So when, when people talk about the prime minister losing the, you know, control of, of, of parliamentary, parliamentary debate or whatever, that really is unprecedented. I mean, that what that means is, um, you know, in in typical times, um, you know, in this case, the conservative party has enough votes and they control the executive so that they can they can really do anything they want. They can pass any piece of legislation they want as long as they have party discipline, as long as the conservative party votes together as a block. And, and historically, there are all sorts of things in place that make sure that the, that the party in power, you know, maintains party discipline. Like you, they could make people. So if you're a member of the conservative party and you don't vote the way the party wants you to, they can literally make you get up and sit with the opposition to move to the other side of the aisle. There's all <laughs> sorts of ways that they can hum- humiliate you. So it's a little interesting to see it go backwards here in that. So what happened, um, yesterday, I guess Tuesday, uh, was during Boris Johnson. He's in the middle of making a speech to parliament and one of his members of parliament gets up and walks across the aisle and joins the opposition mid, like mid speech. There's this video, you can see the sort of the it register with Boris Johnson, what's happening. So, um, and to that extent, that's what's kind of strange about this, right? Normally, the party has the power, and and the the part is the conservative party in particular is so deeply divided that they can't even get you know unity amongst themselves. So now, Boris Johnson is still prime minister, um, even though he doesn't have the votes, he doesn't control a majority of the parliament, and so now we're left with what, what comes next. Nobody can really get anything done. Um, the logical thing, historically, whenever this has happened, whenever the prime minister doesn't control a majority, um, and when I say historically, I'm talking you know hundreds of years of history, uh, it usually leads to an, one of two things, either an immediate election, they call an election, or there's a vote of no confidence in which the prime minister is ousted. And I feel like right now we are just at this standoff. Nobody really wants an election because it's unclear who would win. Um, nobody like the the ousting of Boris Johnson. It's unclear what that would actually lead to. And so I, here we are. I don't I don't really know what's going to come of this or what's going to happen. But the fact that 25 members, I think it was 25 members of the conservative party 
joined with the opposition to take control of the legislative agenda from Boris Johnson is remarkable because it, they weren't just 25 nobodies. They were 25 people who were former cabinet members. They were people who had been, you know, former chancellor of the exchequer, which is their, you know, their uh, treasury secretary, essentially their, their financial. These were big wigs in the conservative party. I think you had said it was uh, Winston Churchill's grandson was one yeah. of them, right? So, I mean, they, they were big, big names. It's an interesting contrast because we've talked a lot about in the U.S., how uh, there's lots of concern about Trump, but you haven't seen many members of the Republican Party sort of standing up or, or you know, doing this. And, and that's what we saw there. Now, it, it might be that, you know, push had come to shove there, right? The, the Brexit is is seven weeks away or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, when, when people talk about what comes next, I don't think anybody really knows because it really is unprecedented what's happening. When you think about like these individuals, they're they're kicked out of the party and they can't run again as conservatives. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that would that the party had that power to say that if you go against that, the, is it the prime minister or whoever gets to make that determination? But that's significant. And and I think to your to your point, these were moderate conservatives. These were individuals who were in power. They were the group that, with Theresa May, were being attacked by you know the the more extreme conservatives, and now it's flipped. Now the moderates are the rebels and the rebels are the ones in power. It's it's really difficult to understand how this moves forward. He's mm-hmm. he's stuck. I mean, I don't know I don't know what's going to happen. So, I mean, theoretically this would potentially be the fourth general election in 3 years if that's allowed to happen, correct? That sounds right. It's been a lot of them, yeah. I mean, he still has the ability to call for a general election and potentially delay the election, does he not? But he needs, Phil, doesn't he need some support from opposition to, doesn't he need a certain percentage of the vote to call for an election? I don't think so. I think he can go oh. to the queen and request an election. Right. Uh, that's oh. part of his his power. But it's unclear, you know, this is what, there, there, are, there are examples in British history where, where Prime ministers took this opportunity, and well, Theresa May, right? So Theresa May called elections, um, and it it bit her in the ass. I mean, she she won the Conservative Party won, but she came out of it with a razor thin majority. There have been other times, though. Where, I mean, the, there are a lot of the polls and stuff show that. Uh, the British public is so torn on this. I mean, even people who are opposed to Brexit, there are some who say, you know, get it done. It's time to get it done because the European Union is terrible. And why has it taken so long? There are others who are opposed to it, but are also in the line, in, you know, in the camp of this is why is this still happening? Like, just get it over with. So it, there's no clear indication. In fact, I, I was looking at some of the uh, markets and, and odds. I wasn't looking at predictive, but several, you know, a number of different places. Um, the most likely outcome, it's not like a majority, you know, it's not like a huge chance, but the most likely outcome is that the conservatives retain uh, control of, of the House of Commons if there is an election. That would be devastating for the opposition, right? So if Boris Johnson, if you have this massive rebellion, they hold elections and and the Boris Johnson-led Conservative Party wins, then he has every piece of ammunition he needs to go forward and say, we're doing a no-deal Brexit and, you know, just tough. We're done debating it. Um, so there's, there's like, it's really high stakes here. Like, it's unclear exactly... Having said all of that, Jeremy Corbyn, the you know the Labour Party, the you know the sort of Democratic Party of British politics, 
Um, this is an, an opportunity where the Labor Party should have, over the last few years, used this to massively expand their influence and their, you know, their their reach. And and it feels like this has just been a huge blown opportunity for them as well. So it, I I sympathize with British voters who are who are like, I don't, you know, wh- who which way do you turn in this in this situation? Mm-hmm. I, I I mean. <sighs> to your point, they're, they're walking a very fine line here, not only in the sense that they could lose the election, but there's also very little indication that the EU is willing to negotiate on this any further. So regardless of what the outcome is, it's very, very likely that that October 31st deadline will still be the deadline. If you do call an election, you're now wasting weeks worth of time to negotiate this. And I'm not sure that that is necessarily best option at this point. No, you're stuck, right? You've got, I mean, so now there is what the, what they passed yesterday was that they, the parliament passed that they want a deal, right? So there's got to be something. So I don't know if that forces their, I guess the, I guess they could come back and change that, right? They could vote again and say, we're going to have the hard Brexit, but it's, you know, there's this civil war that really is taking place within the conservative movement. The, the moderates, uh, you know, the Theresa May conservatives who've left the party have have left a party that's much more extreme. I'm guessing the conservative movement is much more pro-Brexit. There's parallels to what's happened in the Republican Party. Um, that it, that's really fascinating, right? The, these moderate voices are getting pushed out. Although I just think Johnson Johnson's in such a bad position. He doesn't have leadership to pull the, the country together. Jeremy Corbyn, while you're right, it's a weak party. He's just been hammering him. Um, I... This is it's a stunning development. I don't know. I don't know if it's a constitutional crisis, but it is certainly democracy at its most rambunctious. Johnson has is potentially, depending on how this plays out, could be the shortest serving prime minister in British history. If if it <laughs> if, depending on the various ways it could yes. go, somebody was talking about how he's in power. He's been in power for I don't I don't remember the exact number, but it was like four point one Scaramucci's. <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the analogies to the U.S. are. I mean, I, I think that's kind of an interesting point because it. it it is similar, right? In the US, we see the Republican Party being torn between this more kind of nationalistic party um, versus kind of what we think of as the traditional Republican Party, the, the more kind of conservative ideology, small government and, and whatnot. Um, and the reason why I think that's important or it's it's worth pointing out is because the, the stuff that's happening in the US really is a global phenomenon, right? This is happening in lots of – I don't know if it's global, but it's a sort of Western democratic phenomenon. We see this 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 division about, you know, what, what do we – you know what? What do we stand for moving forward from the the conservative side of things? And it's it's just like it's been tumultuous here. It's tumultuous in other places. There are some really interesting differences. You know, I, I think about the, what these members of the conservative party did, where they essentially sacrificed their political career to to do this. And then I, I compare that to you know, it's we haven't talked about it at all, but Jim Mattis, right? So Jim Mattis has this new book coming out, and he has. Uh, this in the last week and a half made a number of statements that are vaguely critical of Trump. But really what he's saying is, why can't we all just get along? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he was asked about like, when will you speak out about the Trump administration? And his response was, if the moment comes, I'll know it. And and it's a really interesting contrast, right? Between yeah. what's happening over there and how the conservative party over there is dealing with it and how the Republican Party here is dealing with it. I, I don't know. Is, is that am I making too much of that difference or do you is there a real difference there? Is it because there's more in, on 
more obviously on the line and that this looming deadline is sitting there? That's a good question. I hmm. I think there are more parallels between the two. I think, you know, Jim Jim's Mattis isn't isn't a, a really a politician, right? He was an appointed individual. And so there are a handful of those, those, but there are also, if you get to Republican House members, I don't think are all that different from what's going on in terms of the, the British Parliament. So I don't know. The, oh, go ahead. I mean, my, my, my response to that is there have been a lot of Republican House members who have said, I'm not running again, but that's different mm. from saying I'm leaving my party, crossing the aisle and voting mm. against my party to, because of, you know, some, principle that I believe in. It, it, it seems, I don't know, it seems different <laughs> to me. Are, mm-hmm. are there the same financial opportunities? So in the United States, you leave government, you can make a lot of money, right? I mean, our, I don't know the United Kingdom if they have limited that. So when you leave government, you just go back to a regular job. I mean, maybe the US system is so corrupt in that sense where <laughs> you don't want to burn bridges because it will hurt you financially. And I don't know, I'm just guessing. Uh, but you know, you're right, there is there's more, there were a number of Republicans who just retired in the last couple of days who mm-hmm. decided they're not running. Most of them are literally from Texas. So um, what do you think about, so I've been thinking a lot about Northern Ireland because obviously this is very relevant and you're seeing some polling out of Northern Ireland saying that there's a growing percentage. It's still not a majority that is contemplating rather being connected, like rejoining Ireland, Hmm. you know, instead of staying with the United Kingdom, that there is, there are numbers, 25, 30% who say, and not just the the Republicans, but some of the unionists who say that it's in our economic interest to, instead of ally ourselves with the United Kingdom, to to turn toward Ireland. And if I'm living there, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a real option? Um, yeah, I mean, in a in a sane world in which everyone sits back and weighs their their economic and political interests, that that sort of makes sense. But I think it leaves off so much history and antagonism that yeah. is still lying below the surface there. So I, I think the the more likely outcome is that it's going to dramatically inflame though, because you know, we've, we've talked about a few weeks ago, people in Northern Ireland, the, the open, the, the, the free movement of people and goods across borders really alleviated a lot of those tensions. So it, you know, that very, very basic history, right? So all of Ireland was part of Britain until the 1920s. And then it, 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 it gains independence, but Britain holds on to these six counties in Northern Ireland that were predominantly Protestant. Um, and so you had Catholics and, and people in Ireland who wanted, who basically said, this is, this is bullshit, right? This was a part of Ireland. Mm-hmm. It should be a part of Ireland. You have Protestants who are terrified of being under Catholic control um, after hundreds of years of violence. And so uh, that was, you know, that's what all the, the the fighting in Northern Ireland for the 20th century was about. And then the EU comes along and people are allowed to move back and forth. The borders don't make so much of a difference. Um, and that's all about to be resurrected. Uh, and, and I think it will, it will, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are lots of arguments for why Northern Ireland, why it would make sense for them to be in the EU as part of Ireland. But I think there are enough people who have hold, held on to those grudges and those tensions and that hundreds of years of history that it's not going to happen easily if if it happens. I mean, this is another point where, you know, we talk about demographic shifts in in places around the US. This is another example of where, you know, over the hundred years of Irish independence, the demographics of Northern Ireland have changed as well, and that the Catholic population has grown um, in relation to the Protestant population. And so I, it's it's another where 
I, people had um, started to kind of shift their assumptions about Northern Irish politics based on the peace of the last 30 years. And, and when we change that, I, I, there's no guarantees of what, what's going to happen. Now, as part of the Good Friday Accords, Northern, Li- Northern Ireland retained the right to ultimately vote for where they wanted to reside, right? So if, if, if the Irish population, if the Catholic population continues to grow, that, that could be an issue. I'm wondering, like both Northern Ireland and Scotland, as this, this chaos continues to play out, um, you know, I think it's less likely that we're going to have a hard Brexit right now, given what's happened in the last few days. But boy, I mean, it just, it just feels like there's a lack of real leadership here. So I guess the question I have, Phil, maybe you can give me an idea about this. If they're if they do in some miracle decide to have a vote of no confidence, what is the process after that of choosing a new prime minister? Uh, there's a couple of ways it can go. I mean, the, you you could and and really, you know, in an ideal de- democratic process, there should be an election, right? If, if the if the prime minister has lost the confidence of the parliament, then the people should be able to go and vote. And, and, and but but it may not play that out, play out that way. It could be right. just like when Theresa May was ousted, in which there's no actual election. But Boris Johnson is ousted as the leader of the conservative party. And so the conservative party could at that point vote for a different leader that is not Boris Johnson and things just move forward that way. As you have the moderates or the people who are, you know, the division within the party, I mean, that's where the idea of electing a moderate leader seems further and further away as the party kind of, as more people defect to the liberal Democrats and to other parties like that. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is. It's hard to think of a good I mean, I, I, I come around to the, the solution is to have an election, right? <laughs> the, mm-hmm. Jeremy yeah. Corbyn may, the, the Labor Party may not have done all that great in the last few years. They may not have seized opportunities. Uh, the, you know, the, the conservative party is a mess. But ultimately, if you're a democracy, you leave it up to the people and you go to the people and say who, you know, we can't figure things out. Let's have an election and figure out who the people want in charge in this particular situation. But that's um, hard to do now, right. though, I, given how close we are to right. Right, October right. 31st. The people are slow. So, <laughs> <clears throat> I, I mean, I, I I agree. In in a normal situation, that would absolutely be the, the process that should be followed. In this particular situation, I feel like the politically expedient thing is still the right thing to do. And realistically, if there are members that are defecting to the opposition party, it cannot be that difficult to find one that's there. Once you have a majority in the opposition say, stay there, we're going to have a vote of no confidence, and then you're going to be the moderate voice Mm -hmm. that we need to get this through in the next few weeks. Because realistically, again, we don't know that there's going to be any movement and on on um you know the side of the eu to make any concessions so i like i i cannot as much as i i want the system to work i i i think this is a moment when the system needs to be set aside very temporarily and, and boris johnson has made this argument that you can't you know you can't tie my hands that i'm going to be negotiating with the eu and and if i push them to the brink they're going to give the you're right nick the eu is not going to they've made their offer it was the theresa may deal it was a reasonable offer and they're they're just going to sit back and say nope it's either hard brexit or you can take basically the deal that we gave theresa may so I mean, I, I keep thinking that they're going to come back to say that basically the that initial deal is the one we should sign, but they mm-hmm. may not 
they may not agree to it. Oh, I mean, I want to make something perfectly clear. The EU are just a bunch of assholes in this situation, too. But regardless, <laughs> something just needs there. There is there's a solution to this and, and no one is is willing to compromise on it. So some sort of politically expedient solution needs to be discovered. It just doesn't feel like they're in the place to make that kind of rational, thoughtful, long term perspective. It's going to be more craziness. And yeah, it'll be entertaining. You know? <laughs> yes, it will be very yeah. entertaining. <laughs> oh. Phil, other thoughts on this? Not really. I mean, I, we've we've talked. To, I, I come I come back around to this is not a popular opinion in in Britain necessarily, but I come around to the the solution is to vote on Brexit <laughs> again. And mm-hmm. I know that yeah. the yeah. criticism is that that is undemocratic, but I, I still come around to we we vote on stuff all the time, right? We have a, an election every four years. We don't vote a president in office and say the Republicans should be in power forever because we voted on it. Um, you know, we we reconsider things and it it feels like the you just settle it once and for all. There's not, there. I, I don't say that because it's clear that staying in the EU would win. It's unclear, but but it seems like, you know, it, if you have the, the vote, then, um, you know, if it comes down that the vote is still for Brexit after all of this mess, then you do it even if it's a hard Brexit and that's what people want. But it does feel like, you know, there's been from the moment the vote happened, there were, there was, there was discussion and debate about whether it was fair. I mean, to some extent, you know, there were a lot of people who didn't turn up. So turn out to vote. So it's not, you know, it's not that people, there's, there's a lot of it that we can get into, but it just feels like if you step back from all the emotion and all the buildup and you're trying to decide what do we do about it, in some way there needs to be a vote, either a revote on Brexit or a vote on which party is in power. But if it's a democratic system and you can put aside, you know, what has happened in the past and how things have gone and you want to figure out what's what's the solution here, you've, you've got to bring the people into it in some way. It's this great question of what is democracy, right? Is democracy listening to the people who had that initial vote or is it, you know, offering them another chance? I have two students who are from the UK who said like when people voted initially, like they weren't thinking long term, right? Nobody thought this would pass and we didn't take it seriously. So that really wasn't a legitimate isn't the right word, but a good exercise of democracy with more time and more information. It would be useful to let the public weigh in again, let the parliament weigh in, um, you know, it's hard to know what is the right democratic solution here. I don't think that'll no, no, no I don't <laughs> think so. I, I, I think that it, yeah, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that people did not have the full story when they were voting for Bre- for Brexit the first time. I think if you now at the eleventh hour call for a new referendum on this and it swings wildly the other way, you're going to have a major, major split in the British population that, and, and we, you know, we talk about hundreds of years of history and, and this, this divide between different cultural and societal groups, this will be a new split in, in UK society that will fester for decades. Um, I, I think it would be, I think it would be dangerous. I think it would be really, really dangerous to, to do that now. Cause regardless of what the, the results are, I think, whoever is on the losing end of that will think that it was stolen from them. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't think there's any way around this. I, I totally, I, like I understand that and, and your, your concerns are valid. Like I think it could go really badly, but I, I also think if you step back and look at the, I mean, this is, this is a, a you know, a, this, you're not the only one making this argument. This is a widespread argument, but I, I feel like if you step back and look at the premise of that, the premise is 
if you know, if we had another vote and it swung dramatically the other way, like 80% of people want to stay in the EU, that the outcome of that would be this deep division and, and you know, all sorts of problems within British society that would, that would fester for a long time. But if that's the case, then what you're doing is you're moving forward with a policy that 80% of Britons oppose. And that also is like a source for a longstanding, you know, animosity and tension and division as as well. And it seems, I, it seems like I, 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 I don't, I don't want to be naive and think that it would go smoothly if you did it, but it, it also seems really problematic to say that, you know, because it will be divisive, we just want to, you know, not think about what, what the people, what the people want. I think the the really bad outcome would be if it came down really close again, either, yeah. either way, but especially if, if you had a vote again and it came out like 51, 49 for staying in oh. the EU, that would be really, that would be bad. That would, yeah. Yeah. It would have to be, like you said, decisive 75% of the public saying like, we've thought about this. We don't want to go forward. You know, I keep thinking we, we oftentimes go after the U S Congress for not making tough decisions and the British parliament has done much the same, right? They're not making a hard decision. They could push back and say, you know, the public voted this way, you know, with our wisdom, either we're going to agree with that or disagree with that. Nobody's making a, what I would say is the a thoughtful decision. I mean, in my perspective is leaving the EU is a terrible thing for the UK, uh, you know, but nobody's nobody's really being thoughtful, Nick. So you think that it would be more detrimental if the vote came out 5149 as opposed to, say, 8020? If it came out 8020 for staying in the EU, yeah. you could at least say that the public has spoken in decisive. a declared, yeah, declarative way. I think people would think that it's that it's a farce. Yeah, I don't think like the Russians. My, uh, yeah, I, I, but I, you, there would be a, a significant segment of the population that would go. There's no possible way that that many people change their minds in this amount of time with the information that we have at this mm -hmm. moment in time. I think it would be way more convincing if it was 51 to 49. There's a small percentage of the population that was slightly, you know, moved to to change their opinion on something. If it was that drastic, that screams conspiracy to people. Well, you know, the other element to think about is when David Cameron, the previous couple of previous prime minister, brought this up, he didn't, you know, it was pressure from within the party. It wasn't like there was a, a broad movement mm -hmm. to say we need to have this. The public was really somewhat indifferent to it. There was a segment that was really motivated and he thought there's no way this doesn't pass. I'm going to throw it out there. And it was a terrible, terrible political mistake. It's really all his fault. <laughs> exactly it is right you know yeah. he was he was trying to find an easy way out um and then he got trapped by it and it, to me it feels this is the dominant story that everybody knows this is a bad decision not everybody a, a whole a lot of people know this is a bad decision but they feel like they can't go against it because of this initial referendum mm. that's well, why I, you got to be careful about letting the public weigh in on issues like this there's you a, don't let them weigh there's in a reason us. why you have you know <laughs> a republic as opposed to a direct democracy mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah, I mean, it's one of those again where even even leaving the EU could be done in a you know it, it, you can make an argument about leaving the EU would be bad for Britain, but uh, you know there there are nuances to the argument about uh, what you know why being a part of the EU is good versus bad. The the problem is we're not we're no longer talking about do we stay a part of the EU or do we have this like compromised negotiated exit. It's where we've gotten into this where it's either we're going to undo what we've decided we're staying with the EU or you know, screw it all. We're leaving without any sort of agreement in place. So it's, we've kind of pushed our, our, our the British, you know, it's been pushed to these extremes. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, you know, if, if there could be some sort of compromise or negotiated outcome, that would be great, but it, it doesn't seem like that's a possibility at this point. 
Yeah, find them all on the other side and right. make them prime minister. <laughs> Sorry, the people don't need to decide. It's too late. Yep. You had time to make these decisions. If this was a few months ago, like <clears throat> when we were initially discussing this, absolutely. Hold another referendum, have another election, do whatever you need to do. But you decided not to do that. And now we're weeks away from a decision that isn't going the, the timetable. I'm 99 percent sure it's not going to change at this point. So now you're trying to grasp at straws, make a difficult political mm -hmm. strategic decision about this. If you're that worried about it, then you're going to have to put your your careers on the line. Yeah, but that's a good place to end. Mm -hmm. All right, Phil, let's talk about beers. What are you what are you drinking? So I'm drinking uh, Critical Band from Modern Times Beer, which is I, it's a, I should have looked before I came in here. I don't know exactly where they are, but it's a pretty can. I don't um, know if you can yeah. see that. Look at that. It's nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this is a hazy tropical IPA. Um, I had, uh, it was, it was, it was kind of a crappy day. I was looking forward to a beer at the end of it. And this has been really nice. So the last couple of weeks I've had, a, we've, I, I've had a few beers that are, you know, in the IPA family, but I, I've enjoyed them because they haven't been kind of super hoppy in your face, citrusy. They've been more subtle. This is more in that family of super hoppy in your face, mm -hmm. like, you know, pineapple, mango. Um, and it's kind of nice after having a couple of weeks of, of something a little different. Uh, it's, you know, I don't... I, it's got a little bit, it's got that sort of tartness to it, but it, it, it's, it's really nice. I, I, you know, I, I, it feels a lot like a lot of the other kind of popular IPAs out there right now. Um, and, and it does a good job of that. It's, it's a, it's been a nice change of pace for me. I, I pick one up if you, if you see one out and about. It's a good review. Would you drink another? I would drink another. <laughs> I would drink another for sure. <laughs> What are we uh, having, Nick? Uh, we are having a uh, an Atom Smasher by uh, Two Brothers, which is a, a local brewery right out in uh, Warrenville, about ten minutes from here. Uh, and it's uh, it's an Oktoberfest. Um, Bill decided to uh, to start that yeah. shit off early. Got to get in there early. No, you don't. It's <laughs> it's still summer. We're not talking about fall yet. Um, yeah, it's um, <sighs> Two Brothers was. When they first started out, they were one of my favorite breweries, and their their initial first few um, things that they came out with were were really good and really different and really unique for the time. And as they kind of iterated on things and and developed and and grew, um, I felt like a lot of their not a lot, but some of their later stuff didn't have the kind of creativity that the original stuff did. Um, yeah, it's. It was just kind of there. It was a, a fairly standard Oktoberfest, maybe with a little bit more bite to mm -hmm. it. Um, I'm not a huge Oktoberfest guy to begin with, but yeah, it just it, it just didn't really do it for me. Yeah, I agree. I I like a good Oktoberfest. I kind of look forward to the multi caramel flavor, but this didn't feel like it had it. It was too a little too effervescent and too bubbly, and mm -hmm. uh, didn't have a good head. No, I, I just uh, this one is not a great. Oktoberfest. No. Yeah. It's it's an okay beer. And they even say on there that you can drink it in uh August Fest or September Fest, but that's kind of the that's kind of the problem. Mm -hmm. It needs to be an Oktoberfest. So <laughs> I can't have September they're, they're, Fest. They're complicating things, yeah. So. <laughs> um if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh look for us on Untapped on iOS or Android. Um we're just Barstool Politics on there. Um and you can check out all of our reviews. 
Speed round? Yes. All right. With each passing day, it is looking like the 2020 presidential electoral map could be the smallest in modern political history. The country is deeply divided with fewer and fewer toss-up states. In fact, it appears that just four states are likely to determine the outcome in 2020. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, and Wisconsin. All the ones that suck. <laughs> Wisconsin's Hello? all right, Nick. Hi. <laughs> Trump won each of them, but only by a percentage point or less. Many analysts are pointing to Wisconsin as the single state upon which the election could turn. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, lots of cheese. <laughs> Trump has focused narrowly on his base and done nothing to expand outside of his core supporters. Democrats have aspirations of flipping Republican-held states like North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, and maybe even Texas. Yet it's far from clear that any of those states are ready to turn blue. Phil, it's, it was almost inevitable that our partisanship and gerrymandering would create a political climate where a handful of states will decide a presidential election. That's good for democracy, right? It makes the counting nice and simple. Just four <laughs> states, maybe only one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We can move on. Next topic. <laughs> yeah. So I'm 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 torn on this. Um, I, I mean, my initial reaction when I when I see this or when I think about this is that this is terrible, right? I, when you have a country of 300 million people, you know, 50 states, the idea that it comes down to a handful of people, uh, relatively speaking, a handful of people and a handful of states is not good for democracy. Um, you know, it, it, that's that's not. <laughs> It's not a good thing. Um, it, it's not a good thing for a number of reasons. It means that there are large num- parts of the country that are, you know, uh, their their votes essentially don't matter, right? I, you know, I before I moved to New Hampshire, New Hampshire, which is a swing state, I lived in this really conservative district in Texas. And it didn't matter if I voted, right? The Republican was going to win. It didn't matter if you were a Republican or a Democrat. They were going to win no matter what. And it feels like that's become such a big part of so many places in the country. So uh, part of me thinks this is, you know, my, my first reaction is to look at this and say, um, this is bad for democracy. The fact that we sort of count votes this way, if, if, if it comes down to a handful of places that reveals a problem with the system. But then I step back and I think I, I had a conversation with, uh, with Bill Bendix, who I work with, who's an American who studies American politics in my department. And, and he was talking about how, you know, he doesn't see that this is the state of the way things are forever, right? That there are these big realignments that that if the Republican Party or the Democratic Party changes things, then the idea that, you know, California is a Democratic stronghold or that, you know, Kansas is a Republican stronghold or whatever, those things change. Um, and the reason why it comes down to a handful of places is because the country's really divided. And so I, I don't know, part of me thinks that that we, we maybe are overly panicking by the fact that there's a handful of states that it comes down to, right? It, it comes down to those handful of states because the rest of the country, all these other states are going each of the other two ways. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Nicholas? Um, <clears throat> I mean, as someone who's lived in Illinois most of my life, I feel like these states just need to get their shit together and just pick a side and have, you know, half their, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the people in the state, their votes not count just <laughs> like mine doesn't count. Those four remaining states should just, yeah, pick, yeah. just let it go. Mm-hmm. Just be apathetic about it. Mm-hmm. You know, infinity and death and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I, 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 I understand that sentiment, Phil, um, in terms of, I, I do think the country is deeply divided, but I, I think we're definitely not at, I don't even think we're at the halfway point of this cycle of 
kind of coalescence around the ideological differences between the two parties. And while I think that there could be a shift, I think that the amount of time that it's going to take to swing back the other way from this particular shift will be decades in the making and have really, before we get to that point, have really detrimental consequences Mm -hmm. to the way that the system works as a whole. Um, And I'm not even sure that I'll see it in my lifetime, which is scary. The fact that an entire generation, multiple generations would have to live under a system where their vote just doesn't matter is is scary to me. And I I would imagine that um, if things continue the way that they are, we're going to whittle this down to two states uh, in the next cycle. And I'm not sure what would even happen after that. the, The trend does not seem to be going in a, in a in a positive direction at this point. You could have a situation where Florida drifts into the Republican camp, and that means that uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin have to be won by the Democrat. Uh, yeah, so it could come down that, let's say, Michigan becomes more Democratic and Pennsylvania as well. I mean, Wisconsin could be that state. Um, you guys remember a time when there used to be multiple paths to the presidency? No. Mm-hmm. You know, where you could you could have win this state, win that state. That's gone mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even Ohio. Ohio used to be a mm-hmm. toss-up state. Now it's it's fairly recently. Yeah, it's it's more Republican, although Joe Biden is is leading Trump there, but it's early. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a bad thing. I think that the candidates have to matter. And when we get we're so entrenched in the party ideology and the partisanship, that's how you get candidates like Trump, who, you know, if it wasn't for a party label, a lot of people would vote against. So I think I, so, I'm disturbed by this. So let me be the the optimistic devil's advocate. This yeah. is not necessarily my <laughs> personal viewpoint, but I, this, there's a counter argument here. It, if we go back to previous episodes, I, probably a year and a half ago, we talked about Stephen Skoranek, right? So this American political scientist who has talked about these uh, kind of eras that exist in American politics where these broad coalitions form. So you can look at American politics from, I'm ignoring that bell. You can look at American <laughs> politics. <laughs> you can look at American politics basically from like FDR through Jimmy Carter. And it was this era of, you know, Democrats basically controlled, you know, American politics. And then from, from Ronald Reagan through kind of now Republicans, there've been, you know, just like during that first era, there were a handful of Republican presidents. There have been a handful of democratic presidents in the last 40 years, but it's been basically a Republican held uh, enterprise. There's a lot of evidence that that Republican coalition that has held on to things is fraying, right? Part of the reason why the Republican Party hasn't been very effective at getting things done is because it's fraying. And so why do I mention that? Well, one part of this Republican coalition are, you know, like Midwestern farmers, for instance, and and they're increasingly frustrated with the Trump. So Trump is trying to please all of these different constituencies that he can't please. You can go after big business, you know, and try to, you know, incur, or you can you can sort of try to prop up or support the nationalists by putting trade limitations or restrictions on China, but that hurts the farmers who are another part of the coalition. You can. Um, try to, you know, give subsidies to the farmers, but that pisses off the sort of, you know, small government, you know, lower taxes aspect of the Republican Party. You can give tax cuts to the wealthy, but then the the farmers and the, you know, the, uh, you know, the Christian conservatives are pissed off about it. So try trying to keep everyone on the same page has become harder. Now, 
that's where, you know, we've sort of written off the Midwest or, you know, the, a lot of the places as like these Republican strongholds, but there's no guarantee that that will be the case moving forward. The whole reason I say all of that is that it's starting to feel like we're forever doomed to live in this divided way that we're living. But if we look back to history, there have been times where these changes and these realignments happen really quickly. So it could be that 20 years from now, there's, you know, a, a, a presidential contest isn't one because it's all pre-decided. Or it could be 20 years from now, the electoral map looks totally different. Um, and I'm, I'm not... I'm not hopeful that that will be the, or I don't, I'm not certain that that's going to happen, but I, I think the odds of it happening are greater than, than a lot of people realize might be the case. There's no prediction about exactly how that realignment would look, but, but there, it, you know, it feels like it has been this way forever and it will be this way forever, but I don't know that that's true. Mm -hmm. He's, Phil's got some optimism. This is good because as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about how you were wrong. No, no, well, no, because you're right. It, it might only take one major state flipping to shake up everything. Sure. And, and, you know, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Texas. If Texas were to suddenly shift, if, dem, you know, if the demographic changes in Texas lead it to moving blue, which is still probably a ways away. But if that were to occur, it would change the political system, how candidates run. And that's not just going to be isolated at Texas. That will play out elsewhere. Republicans will have to adapt and come up with new strategies. And then all of a sudden, you've got an entirely unique political system. I, I, I would, in theory, agree with yeah. that. I, I, would, I would absolutely agree with that if the system that we work within or, or work under now wasn't focused pure, not purely, but uh, overwhelmingly on ideology over, um, compared mm -hmm. to policy. Uh, and I think that's where as much as that is, is there's significant frustration, um, especially in, you know, the, the Midwest with, uh, you know, Trump administration policies, especially in terms of agriculture, uh, and, and a number of other things. I I'm not, I'm not confident that, a particular policy decision will be enough to override the ideological um, kind of overarching uh, message or, or tent that people have kind of found themselves in. But think about how much Trump in just two, two, two plus years has moved the ideology of the Republican Party. And, and how quickly that, that can, I'm, I'm now, now I'm channeling Phil here. Uh, <laughs> you know, you could have, if, if Republicans faced losing Texas or something like that, they could become more mod. There's a lot of ways the Republican party could move that would make them really, really competitive in a lot of upper Midwest states. And that's, they that's could. where yeah. your, that's where your cynicism, Nick, could make you an optimist, right? Because <laughs> if, you can be cynical about there, right? yeah. you can be cynical about party motivations, but let's say Texas flipped, right? And Texas flips and makes makes it where you know the democrats have a much easier path because of the cynicism which is not wrong right the republican party would adapt they would have to figure out ways in sure. which they could pick people up and so the idea that they would you know that partisanship will would as bill was saying right you've seen it kind of how that identity changes a little bit with trump i think the republican party in an attempt to get back into power would you know do what it took to sudden you know to maybe pick up some places that are you know, other leaning states, New Hampshire has kind of drifted a little bit more blue over the past yeah. few years, but mm -hmm. there could be policies the Republicans, you know, uh, grab onto that, that, uh, you know, help them pick up some other votes here and there. I, I, I agree. Like realistically that my original thing was it, it would take something drastic for that shift to happen sooner rather than later. So it would take something like, yeah. like Texas, Texas going yeah, blue, yeah. um, to, to see that, that shift. But, 
I'm I'm not confident that that's going to happen in the near future. So to summarize, it sucks, but it could get better. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> like life. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. It appears that John Bolton is no longer in the good graces of President Trump and has been effectively sidelined on critical negotiations Walrus, over U.S. No. I know in Afghanistan. Bolton is a staunch foe of the current uh, negotiations with the Taliban seeking to end America's longest war. His opposition has irritated President Trump, and you do not want to irritate him, uh, and led aides to leave the National Security Council out of sensitive discussions about the agreement. As you can imagine, leaving the National Security Advisor out of key national security issues poses some problems. And as one senior official noted, quote, it's messed up on so many levels. (laughs) I love that quote. It wasn't long ago that Bolton played a dominant role in determining U.S. foreign policy and outmaneuvered other cabinet officials with less experience in the interagency process. But over time, his influence has declined as his tough management style and aggressive worldview have worn on the administration officials, including Trump himself. Phil, this is not at all surprising. Bolton is the last guy you want showing up at your Christmas party. Uh, What are we to make of this development and how might it impact U.S. foreign policy moving forward? Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> pass. <laughs> I, it, you know, it, it, it's a weird thing, right? We've talked about in previous weeks about, you know, a president should be able to or not, like we've debated this, should they be able to surround themselves with their own choice of, of people? Uh, or, you know, or if somebody's kind of crazy and out there, should they be limited from, from these sorts of positions? Um, this is a whole different thing, right? In which John Bolton from the beginning didn't really seem like a, a fit with the Trump administration. Um, it seemed like there was a fit over early on, you know, North Korean policy or whatever. And then Trump has, has shifted. I, I think the, the main conflict here is that Trump, I mean, sorry, is that uh, Bolton is like wedded to certain principles. Like, I feel like you could not, con- like Iran could, you know, I, I don't know. It, it could change its national anthem to the United, to, to the, you know, the star spangled banner and adopt the American constitution start, you know, praising America and give us all of their money. And John Bolton would still want to bomb them. Right. Like it's a, it's, he is set on something and Donald Trump's the exact opposite, right? Like he's not wed to anything. Like he, he's going to change with, with whatever he feels like. The thing that's weird to me is why keep him on board? Right. So he, if like, if they're, if they're shutting him out, your national security advisor like they're keeping him from accessing certain things. That's that's crazy, right? If if he's not serving the job, then get rid of him. Um, I think it speaks to the fact uh, to how much of this presidency is just a personal presidency, right? It is it is embodied in one person um, and not like a larger ideology that that person uh, represents. So I, I don't know what this means for foreign policy. I mean, I think it means that it's up to the whims of Donald Trump, which is why you get such dramatic swings on on North Korea and other things like that. Mm. You ready, Nick? You me? I, I think I no, can go ahead. I could be the optimist to Phil's <clears throat> pessimism here. So last time you were the optimistic. <laughs> so uh, there's part of me that feels like this might be a sign that there are at, at, at lower levels in the, in the foreign policy bureaucracy, individuals who know what they're doing and have convinced Trump that Bolton is bad news because Bolton has been sidelined in Afghanistan on the North Korean policy on Syria. And to me, there's a little bit of, I'm a little happy about this, right? Because his views are dangerous. Um, And the so-called adults in the room, and I don't think that's at the cabinet level anymore, have been able to convince Trump that 
negotiating with the Taliban is is a productive direction um, that you know we we you know so I think there's I think there's a little bit of I don't know hope that that Bolton has been sidelined as as somebody who shouldn't be involved in these conversations. Here's here's where I I'm not sure I follow yeah. the the story. I it's yeah. hard for me to imagine that Donald Trump is actually listening to to no, low ranking no, officials. No, no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> so in that in that case, I, I don't know that he's been convinced so much as he's just quit listening to Bolton and the thing that he has drifted towards happens to be in line with what the the you know a style I I feel like it's almost more that he's just gotten bored with with things and, and has moved on. And John Bolton is like, no, we need to bomb them. And Donald Trump is, he's like tired of hearing about Afghanistan or tired of hearing about North Korea. Mm I think two things could be true there because the only reason that Trump initially brought Bolton on is because Bolton went on Fox News and defended him, right? It right. didn't matter what Bolton's views were. He was like, well, this guy defends me. So over time, Trump and others have been annoyed with Bolton. And that's what he does. He annoys people. Yeah. Uh, and so at least Trump has enough sense to say, like, this guy doesn't get to be involved anymore. Now, at, at another level, then I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> the National Security Advisor is supposed to be the one that coordinates with all the other foreign policy roles. So they are the one who is not so much driving policy, but facilitating discussion. And the fact that the National Security Advisor isn't doing that is deeply problematic. He isn't allowed to <laughs> do right. it. It's not that he's unwilling right. to do it. It's yeah. that he's not yes. being allowed to. Yes. Yeah. I, Bo- I, both. I mean, Sorry. This isn't a huge surprise, though. We saw months ago that Trump was having uh, uh, w- the uh, initial dust up with Iran that uh, Trump was saying, you know, Bolton wanted to bomb them immediately. And we that's not something we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, in terms of the adults in the room and what the administration looks like, um, I, I think it's to, to your point, Bill, I, I think that there are low, lower level players who are starting to evolve in this kind of toxic quagmire that we have in the executive branch at this point and know how to not manipulate, but, um, you know, bend the will of, of Trump, not necessarily to their means, but in a way that's more effective and slightly more nuanced in middle of the road. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'll have a tiny bit of optimism on this one. <laughs> I agree with you. The less <laughs> Trump is involved in the day-to-day discussions about foreign policy, the better, right? I mean, Af- I think Afghanistan pulled back. He's, he's deeply involved in North Korea. That's not helping. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk caucuses. Last Friday, leaders of the Democratic National Committee voted to reject Iowa's plan to allow people to vote by phone in what they were calling virtual caucuses. The DNC had had concerns that remote caucusing might be vulnerable to hacking. And you just know that Putin would love to hack himself an Iowa caucus. Unlike a conventional primary, a caucus is a political gathering where participants gather to uh, come together Uh, And the voting process is often not conducted by secret ballot, ballot, but by raising hands or gathering in groups organized around a preferred candidate. Iowa's faced criticism that its caucus system is not inclusive and generally only the deeply committed turnout, which has the effect of benefiting more extreme candidates. Looking for a way to involve more people, Iowa came up with a plan for phoning in your caucus preferences. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, Nick. Uh, Phil, some have suggested that it's time for Iowa to give up on this outdated and exclusionary uh, voting practice. What's your thoughts on caucusing either the traditional or virtual forum? Uh, So um, 
I, I I'm I'm torn on the traditional form of caucusing. I get the positives. I get the idea that you know if you really if in order to show up and participate in a caucus, you have to really care, and so you have to be really invested. Um, and 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 that is you know there's something about the. There was something sort of positive about the days of the old political machine, right? Where where the the party sort of chose a person that they were going to put out as the representative. Um, it wasn't terribly democratic, but it avoided kind of the popularity contest that we get into today. So there's something positive about that. There's something positive about the idea of people actually have to gather in a room and debate and discuss it before they pick pick somebody. Um, so th- those are those are positives of it. Um, the negative is that I, I mean, it just it does seem outdated. Like I, the idea, I the idea of going to a, a stranger's house and like arguing with them over which candidate For I support hours. sounds <laughs> terrible. Like that's terrible. <laughs> I would not do that. And and that, what that would mean is just because I don't like the processes. I I mean, it feels like people, as many people as possible, should be included in the process. And and this is prohibitive of that. And so that seems. That seems bad. I mean, I, I just it's time to to move on to a different a different model. Having said that, this whole virtual caucus where you can call in your vote that seems like the worst idea of all of them. <laughs> like, if you're gonna go with a caucus, then keep it the way it is, which is that you actually have to show up and engage in the discussion. If you're gonna go to, I can call in my vote, then you might as well have a primary in which people can go and just pull a lever at a voting booth. Nick, they said there was going to be a pin number that you would push in. Oh yeah, and that would be the, that would that would keep it secure. That'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> totally, absolutely. You can't fake phone numbers and you know just call from other places. I'm sure you'd be having IP freely and uh, <laughs> huge ass calling every other call. Apparently, like the national security people or the like the hacking people were saying, like, "Are you are you no, insane?" It's the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's it's stupid and like realistically as much as to to your point Phil I do think that you know the the old ways are somewhat exclusionary but it seems like a lot a lot of what we've seen um especially in the aftermath of 2016 is going back to the old ways that seem to be the most effective you're going to go back to paper ballots you're going to go back to in-face caucuses and 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 talk about things and as much as I think that from for me personally going somewhere and having to debate someone for hours on end sounds mind numbing. And I, like, I just want to burn the place down by the end. That's realistically what the process should be. You should have to debate people about who these leaders are going, going to be. If you're not invested in that to that degree, then I, I mean the, you get the candidates that you get. I sure. like, I'm not sure what the alternative is. How do you include an entire population? A lot of which just doesn't want to participate in, in that system. That's a good point. It has the potential to elevate the political discourse. I'm just not sure it does. I, you know, I've loved Phil's campaign corner because we've learned so much about <laughs> New Hampshire and it feels like New Hampshire has a much better system, right? It's now there's something unique about a small state, but people are involved. They're engaged. The candidates come locally. But you're not going to, you know, to debate these in some guy's house, right? You, at the end of the day, you vote in a primary. That strikes me as the way to do this. It involves the most number of people. It, you know, it, the the caucusing system seems like it it allows people who have a lot of free time, who are really ideological, to show up and vote. And I, I don't know if that's 
I want that group driving the political process. The, the thing that worries me about the caucus, the, the ideas behind it that you should uh, that you should have to be informed and engaged and willing to actually argue and debate are all com- convincing to me. But it, when I step back, I, it also starts to I mean, that's going down the road of limiting the vote, right? That that only certain people who have in some way proven that they care should actually have the right to vote. And and there's a long history of trying to do that in the U.S. And I, I I want voters to be informed. I want them to be engaged. But when you start sort of creating barriers to voting, then then it, I I don't know where that ends. That's that's the part that gets that gets difficult for me about how to sort through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like an experience. Now we're not in you know caucus states, but I would not want to do that. I would love to be in New Hampshire and be able to hear and see the candidates showing up to some nut job's house and having to go from corner to corner. I mean, these are Byzantine rules, right? And so when your individual doesn't win, you can move to another corner. I don't know. Nick. I don't want to like any of it. I, I don't want to tell is stupid. But. I don't want to tell my coworkers or family or anything like who I vote for when I go into the right. voting booth. So the yeah. idea of having to show up to a stranger's house and raise my hand is like, a, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I do think there's value in having a, a, a couple early states to signal to the rest of the country how the candidates have done. I'm just not sure if Iowa system is doing that. I think New Hampshire may be doing that, but I don't think Iowa is. Should we just get rid of the caucus system? Yes. Okay. That's where I'm heading. All right. I'm yeah, good with all that, of too. It. I think it's yeah. Iowa and Nevada are the only ones left. All right. Fuck them. Then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, it's another anniversary. So last week, we celebrated the five-year anniversary of Obama wearing a tan suit. We've got another important anniversary this week. It's been a year since the publication of the instantly viral op-ed column about President Trump that appeared in the New York Times, titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. (laughs) The article set social media on fire with speculation about who the senior official could be. The article describes efforts by the White House staffers, including the author, to thwart Trump's amorality and impulsiveness, which have resulted, according to the writer, in, quote, half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that we have that, that have to be walked back. Despite an investigation by the White House, the culprit remains unknown. Was it Kellyanne Conway, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence? We just don't know, Nick. We don't know. Because he doesn't exist. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> if, if you remember, Trump was not pleased with this development. And he tweeted, quote, if the gutless anonymous person does indeed exist, the Times must, for national security purposes, <laughs> turn him or her over to the government at once. Uh, what's interesting to me is that it's been a year and we still don't know the identity of the individual. So Phil, are you surprised by this? Well, it's, it's been a year, but they've successfully like managed to like rein in all of Trump's worst impulses. So it's been, (laughs) you know, like it's, (laughs) it's been a success. <laughs> Quick, move on. Yeah, no, I mean it's not surprising. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a little surprising that it hasn't uh, come out who the person was. I mean, this gets back to the you know it takes us back to the first topic we talked about, in which there's something you know it, when you look at the British system, the idea of people actually standing up and saying you know I oppose this and this is how I'm going to actively work towards it. That feels that feels noble in comparison to this. Um, you know the idea of I, I'm doing I don't know. It's, it, again, it's just it shows the extent to which people were willing to sort of jump on board with the notion that someone else is going to save us from this. It, it's, you know, the, there's this weird kind of narcissism about it in the, in the idea of 
uh, I'm going to, I'm, it's morally, you know, it, it is the moral weight is for me to stay here, even though I don't like Trump and fight against him. But I also feel the need to write an article bringing attention on the fact that I'm doing this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nick, this is one of your favorite things that happened a year ago. Motherfuckers. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I, again, to, to Phil's point, I, I cannot imagine that if there is someone, a senior quote unquote, uh, official within the Trump administration, that they have this many concerns about how, how things are, are unfolding and operating, that you still somehow are going to either stay within the confines of the administration, supposedly, you know, trying to tamp down on his worst impulses, which again, you've done a bang up job over the past year, <laughs> um, or you leave and don't say anything. I, I like I, at this point, I'm of, of the mindset that this person does not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked about how people need to take a principled stand, a principled stand when these things happen, or, or, you know, you see, major abuses of power, you know, that, that you perceive to be major abuses of power and you put your career on the line and you go out and you have a press conference and this is what's happening. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a patriotic American. I think this is wrong. This is, you know, I, I'm not going to launch a Senate campaign to, you know, two weeks after this, or, you know, I have a book coming out in a month or something like that, but we haven't seen any of this. And I, I like, I, it, it just, it's not convincing enough for me to think that this person that it's it's a real person who has these concerns but doesn't have uh, uh, using trump's words he doesn't have the guts to actually do anything about it i like you're either not effective at what you 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 know say that you you want to change or you you just don't care that much and you wanted the attention like i i don't know what it is or you don't exist right well mainly think, don't exist i think they exist but i'm a little like you i'm a little tired of this sort of quiet or secret dissent. You know, and, and I, I, as Nick was talking, I was thinking back to what Phil said about, you know, Mattis and Mattis has this new book out and he doesn't want to come out and criticize the president. So it's kind of general suggestions of what's what's troubling about all this. That leads me to believe that either you don't think Trump is as bad as some suggest or he is and you're unwilling to say so. And that's frustrating to me. You know, I'm glad the person wrote the article and, and cre created some discourse, but, but yeah, more and more individuals need to come out if it truly is bad there's part of me that thinks well maybe it's not so bad if nobody within the administration is willing to come forward and make that to what you said a legitimate claim to say this person should not be in the office it's i don't know it's it's frustrating mm -hmm. yeah i i agree with you i i also feel like the it's interesting to think back on this a year later because it feels like things have changed in a year um it feels like the 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 nature of the trump administration or or trump's sort of hold over the executive branch has has been extended. I mean, the people around him, we've talked about the adults in the room have left or whatever. But the result is that Trump really is, you know, in in control in this situation. I, my speculation is that I have, I have no idea who this is. But if I had to bet, I would bet this is a person who a year ago really thought they were making a difference. And they're not there anymore. Like they mm -hmm. at some point this year, they gave up, right? Like we're not making a difference. I'm going to either they're a career bureaucrat in which they're keeping their head down and trying to do their best or they were a political appointee 
who has moved on. If you are still there, if you're Kellyanne Conway or Mike Pence, you don't have some bold, grand like critique of the president that you're fighting against anymore. Um, I, I just, it, I don't know. And, and to me, that that feels like it felt like a year ago when this came out. It was like, oh, there's still people within the. And it just doesn't feel that way anymore. It feels like the Trump has has successfully, you know, taken hold of of his administration in the last year. And secrets in in DC can be held for a long period of time. I'm no, thinking about Watergate. No, no, a lot of them, you know, Watergate or you know. So this this could be something that we ultimately will eventually figure it out. But it might be years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm glad we agree that it's the media's fault and they're the enemy of the people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, it's time to play one of our favorite games called What's More Problematic. Uh, this is when I detail two recent political developments, and you tell me which one is more problematic. Not surprisingly, both are things that President Trump did recently. Political development number one, the phone call that never happened. Last week at the G7 meeting, Trump surprised everyone when he announced that chi- the Chinese officials had called top U.S. trade officials and expressed their desire to restart trade negotiations. Unfortunately, the Chinese foreign ministry disputed Trump's claim that such phone call conversations had taken place. The spokesman said, quote, I'm not aware of the phone calls over the weekend you mentioned. So it appears that Trump may have lied about the uh, about China wanting to restart trade negotiations in an effort to bolster an anxious stock market. That's number one. Political development number two, the tweet that did happen. President Trump tweeted what experts say is almost certainly an image from classified a classified satellite or drone showing the aftermath of an accident at an Iranian space facility. It is likely that Trump or someone in the room took a photo of the classified document and then Trump tweeted it out. In the tweet, Trump noted that, quote, the United States of America was not involved in the catastrophic accident. But he did wish around the Ron best wishes and good luck in determining what happened at site one. <laughs> so, gentlemen, I ask you, which of these is more problematic? The phone call that never happened or the tweet that most certainly did? Phil, why don't you start us off? So I'm going to I'm going to go off script and say that uh, this is a classic example of two things. It's a, another version of two things can be true. Uh, both things are deeply problematic. Both are really disconcerting. Um, they're, they're both examples of something that in a different presidency would be massive, you know, uh, scandals or issues. Uh, you know, so the first one, the first idea is that in order to give the stock market a boost, he he lied, right? He blatantly lied about a conversation that he had with China that China wants to start trade negotiations. Um, that again, that in and of itself is is in another presidential administration a massive scandal. Um, if, if you're if through the power of the presidency, you're trying to essentially manipulate the stock market to your own advantage. Bad. That's a bad thing. Um, the second one, uh, you know, Trump t- pointed out on the on the on the tweet that he has the right to I think he later talked about how he has the right to do this. He does. Right. As yeah. the president, he has the right to do this. So it's not a question of legality, but it is a question of propriety and that it is, you know, within uh, hours, people like amateurs, not even like national security people had figured out which satellite it probably came from. And based on that could, could figure out the resolution of the satellite, like how powerful the, the, 
the um, the satellite was. And it, it's a satellite that is it is uh, uh, classified like it was not known around the world, like how powerful these spy satellites were. Now it's known just from tweeting out this this uh, this photo. Um, that's that's just, you know, it, it is. I, I don't know why. I don't know what happened or what he gained from that. Um, other things I can see how he gains this one. I don't I, it wouldn't surprise me if he tweeted this out, you know, because it helped in his argument against. I, I mean, I guess it helps a little bit in Iran, but. Um, yeah, I mean, he potentially sets back you know, a lot of uh, American intelligence uh, abilities with with this tweet. I talked a lot. The answer is they're both really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, which is more problematic? I, I mean, I think they're both. Ba- I don't know about really bad. Yeah. They're both bad. Yeah, maybe for different reasons. Um, in terms of of uh, of China, yeah, I, I mean, Trump has a history of of doing this, saying things that happened that that technically didn't mm-hmm. happen um <laughs> w- <laughs> technically <laughs> technically in the realm of the reality that we all inhabit it probably not really didn't happen um wh- what's concerning about me or what concerning about me wow, <laughs> that's a long list <laughs> oh boy anyway what's concerning about this first story is not necessarily that I mean, it is concerning if Trump is lying about this, but now it's gotten to a point that we don't know which side is necessarily telling the truth. It could very well be that in these situations where the president says something that this could have happened, he could have made the phone call. But in the context of what we know and what we've seen and what's been established, that China can go, yeah, he didn't say anything about this. We don't want to start, you know, restart trade negotiations, which just fuels more speculate uh, speculation. And makes the the economic situation even worse. Um, that to me is is exceedingly problematic because we don't I, I, the fact that we would take China's word on this um, over Trump initially is is concerning to me. So that that's a problem yeah. for me. Um, in terms of the Iran thing, he, he yeah he does have the right technically to do this. Um, the the only thing that anyone was really able to figure out was possibly the loca- the location of the satellite and the um, the actual um, uh, clarity and resolution that that it, was so it clear. has, which is ex- oh. really, really clear. But um, beyond that, there, I, I can't imagine what classified information that they're gaining from that. What mm. I do know is that it does kind of stick a craw or, or stick a... a, a, a um, a, uh, a, a, now I forgot the fucking term. Um, <laughs> it, it, it rankles Iran a yeah. little bit and does, you know, exacerbate, the, not exacerbate, but kind of pointedly say, yeah, we know exactly what you're doing. We were probably involved in this and we have the capability to watch you at every step of the process in detail that you didn't know that we could do before. Um, which to me is a, Again, not the most nuanced uh, uh, method of using uh, an exceptionally advanced um, spy apparatus, but it is an effective sure. kind of tool and and communication method to use. Um, now that I think about it, I don't really have a problem with the second one. I'm going to go with the first one. With my, <laughs> the, the, the worst of the so, two. The distinction I hear I see here is between being immoral and being stupid. Mm-hmm. So the first one, he knows that if he lies about this phone call. It's immoral. It's wrong, right? He's trying to help the stock market. He's trying to help himself because he he took a hit in the stock market because he was a you know 
telling American companies to leave China and attacking the Fed chairman. So if he lied, it was going to help the market. That's immoral. It's wrong. The second one, I'm not sure what his motivations are. It might have been that he saw this picture and thought, I want to tweet it out. This is a really interesting picture. <laughs> hey, I want to share, which makes it stupid. I don't know if there's real intentionality to this. It's possible he was trying to send a subtle signal to Iran. I'm not sure. So, so I don't know. I, I, I yeah. in, in sending the message, though, you undermine your ability in the future to 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 get the yes. the sort of intelligence yeah. that you need. Yeah, stupid, so wait, right? So That's are, why it's stupid. Are, which are you arguing? Which is worse, stupid or immoral? Oh, the first one. Immoral. Immoral is worse than stupid, right? Because he knows what he's doing is wrong. They're both problematic. Wait, but wait, it, wait. He doesn't necessarily know. He could be a sociopath. We don't know that he has that capability. Mm, fair point, Nick. Fair point. <laughs> no, I, sorry, think, I think they're both troubling, problematic, all of that. But I think the the first, you know, the the, the lying about the phone call is, is worse because he knows it's wrong. This mm. is where we're at, right? Yeah. This is a fun game. Let's play this more often. <laughs> play this game more often. <laughs> stupid or incompetent? Is that what it was? No, no. What's more problematic? Stupid no, or immoral? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stupid yeah, immoral or, or stupid? Yeah. Oh, we could we could change the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! So many things yeah. to talk about all the time. Regardless, if you guys uh, like the discussions that we have, or don't like them and want to tell us about it, and then have us yell at you about it. Um, Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. Uh, so open up a $20 account and predict it will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, just use the promo link predicted.org slash promo slash Barstool Paul 2020 uh, to check it out. Anything else, guys? That was a fun one. That was good. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Uh, Phil, you good? I'm good. We will see you guys next week then. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.